Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today I'd like to start out reminding you of this website called wealthformula.com, which houses the Wealth Formula Podcast. And that's where you can get all sorts of resources to complement the things that we do on this show. So if you want free stuff, right, free books, free presentations, all that stuff, go to wealthformula.com. That's also where you can sign up for our accredited investor, Reg D Group, Investor Club, and uh, I can go through that onboarding process if it's something you're interested in doing. And you might also consider joining Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is separate from Investor Club. It is our sort of more online community where we have all these great discussions and actually starts with a course and then we have an online community on Facebook and we do bi-weekly Zoom video calls. Everybody who's in it seems to love it. You might love it too if your friends and family don't like this stuff and you need someone to talk to. It's almost like a personal finance support group. Anyway, if you're interested in that, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Ignore the silly sales uh, video that some um, internet marketer wrote for me at one point. It is what it is. It's a great course and then it's a great community. So check it out. Wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as far as today's show, you know, it makes me think back to the days when I first got out of training and started my new life as an adult. Now, when you are a physician or in a surgeon, that usually doesn't mean you're 18 years old. It means like you're in your early thirties, right? That's when you're getting out of residency and finally, you know, really making a real amount of money and, you know, have real responsibilities and are not treated like a slave. Anyway, when that happened, when I left and started my life as an adult a surgeon, I was terrified about anything related to really anything legal, you know, whether that was any legal issues or, or IRS stuff, audits from the IRS. I was terrified of those kinds of things happening. And anytime I got a letter from the IRS about anything, even if it was just a confirmation or, you know, some sort of refund or something, I would break out into cold sweats. You know, every time I got a letter from the IRS, I would just think, oh, my God, this is something terrible happened. I'm being audited. I'm, I'm going to jail or something. And you know what? Every time I got a letter from an attorney, it would be the same. I would freak out, you know, and I'd have those cold sweats. I'd have that reaction, the fight or flight reaction, even though those attorney letters mostly were advertisements. Now, fast forward all these years into my adult life. 
Now I went straight from becoming just an adult to being middle-aged. 47 now, owner of multiple businesses, complicated financials, complicated stuff. Even even Tom Wheelwright calls my stuff complicated. You know that, that it's complicated if Tom is calling my stuff complicated. Anyway, now, all these years later, I don't have visceral reactions to any of that stuff anymore. You know, IRS correspondence, legal stuff, lawsuits, whatever. Why? Well, when it comes to taxes, I would venture to say that in my experience, knowing the people I know, any business owner making a decent chunk of money is eventually going to get audited, right? After all, what is an audit? Audit's an inspection, right? And small business, where you're just not getting a W-2 and all that kind of thing, occasionally there's going to be an inspection. If you And if you aren't doing anything wrong, then what are you worried about? You know, I've been, unfortunately, through three tax audits now, and I think they were actually consecutive because usually once you get audited, they just keep coming back for more and eventually they kind of let go, but whatever. In all cases, in all three audits, I did nothing wrong. I broke no laws. I did a bunch of the stuff that we talk about on the show, conceptually, these things, and no one found any trouble with that. The audits, therefore, mostly focused on documentation. And in some cases, the documentation was not done as well as it could have. And really, what that's what the auditors wanted to focus on. So in my experience, the audit process really just was a negotiation right? It's a negotiation. If you get audited, I guarantee you they're going to find something, no matter how ridiculous it may seem to you, no matter how good your records are, then, then the idea is they're trying to, you know, raise tax revenue and you're audited. They've already put the resources through. They got to bring something home, right? So then you got to come to some kind of settlement. Now, it's not just the IRS. The legal system in general works on these principles of settlement. And that's why I don't really fear frivolous lawsuits anymore either. I mean, very rarely do things go to court. The dirty little secret is that whoever has the most money usually wins disputes simply by the threat of draining the opposition of financial resources, not by a lawsuit victory, but by just draining them with legal fees, right? That's really what it's all about. So once you realize that complexity of the real world, it's actually much, much easier to sleep at night, whether it comes to, you know, audits or legal issues, whatever. I should point out, though, as a related thing, if you have good asset protection, that's another way to sleep well at night because with the frivolous lawsuits or even legitimate personal liability, you know, you hit somebody driving or something like that, and you're going to get sued. Well, if you have really good asset protection in place, you can sleep well at night. And that's what you, um, you know, I'll refer to you, my friend and attorney, Doug Ladmel, about that one. But getting back to taxes, I want to emphasize that most of the tax code is gray, right? It's not like right or wrong. It's you're interpreting things, you're, or not you, but you're qualified tax professional that's on your side is interpreting things to make sure that you are not doing anything illegal. And if you're not, then you shouldn't really be too worried. What you don't want, on the other hand, is a robot, right? You know what I'm talking about. I, I, I had these early on. They were the quote-unquote conservative CPAs that were going to keep you away from audits and all that BS that really the doctors are fed. 
the reality is, you know, that these CPAs, all they are is they just, they're just taking your money, right? And they're not letting you, they're not trying at all to see where you can legally keep money in your pocket. And the typical mantra of these types of, of CPAs is simply, you can't do that. And you've heard my CPA, Tom Wheelwright, say that uh, about, you know, these kinds of robots and CPAs. Tom's not one of them, obviously, and I highly recommend you consider someone in Tom's WealthAbility team at WealthAbility.com. However, I will just say that it is good to get different perspectives because you get into one tribe or one perspective and you don't see how other people are seeing it. And sometimes you hear the same stuff over and over again uh, and you feel like you know it all until you don't. And that's why this week's interview with tax attorney Stephen Moskowitz really was eye-opening for me. And if you're worried about taxes and audits and all that kind of stuff, you're going to be really fascinated by this interview that we are going to do when we come back after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Steve Moskowitz. Now, Steve is a tax attorney. He's got 30 years of experience under his belt, extensive knowledge of tax law, a desire for swift and vigorous defense when necessary. He's got decades of experience with tax authorities and the courts, and he's unusually perceptive in assessing the, you know, the best way forward and the right resources to achieve resolutions. So today, together with a full team of tax attorneys and CPAs and the usual group, Moskowitz LLP, which he founded, helps business and individual clients across the country and overseas to resolve a wide variety of tax matters. Uh, he also creates strategies to utilize uh, the tax code and relevant uh, treaties to clients' benefits, and provides an ongoing tax support and tax preparation. Steve, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so it was funny. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit uh, offline here about uh, this being a slightly different audience. I mean, where we talk a lot about tax. So we're, we're probably going to take, uh, take things a little bit 
Deeper. Who doesn't want to talk about tax? I can think of no better subject. <laughs> well, the question is, uh, you know, when it comes to my audience, you know, we have an intergroup called Wealth Formula Network, which is composed of probably about 200 people online, and we get these conversations. And uh, the depth of those conversations in terms of tax strategies and what we all know and bring to the table is blows people's minds sometimes, and uh, me too, but I'm always excited to learn more. So thanks for joining us. So why don't we start out simply with this? Tell me a little bit about, I know you were also, you were a professor before. What brought you to tax law and what do you find interesting about it? I was also a CPA before I was a tax attorney. And when I set foot into law school on day one, I already had a bachelor's and master's in accounting. and I was a CPA. The reason I went to law school was not to chase ambulances or do divorces. I realized as a tax attorney, I could do so much more for my clients than I could as a CPA. I want to be the guy to tell a client what you can do, not the guy to tell them what you can't do. And also as an attorney, I could defend everything that we do in the courts as opposed to saying, well, I can only go that far and, and that's it. So that's the reason why I became an attorney. And I went into private practice because, you know, I have a very heavy background in tax. And most guys that have a background like mine go to work for the big firms whose clients are the Fortune 500. And that's what I did too. And I worked real hard there. And then I realized no matter what I did, I could be the best guy or the worst guy. I'm not going to affect the Fortune 500. But a small business or an individual make a huge difference. And I'll never forget one of my very first cases. I was at counsel table with my client in court. And about every five minutes, my client was reminding me that if I lost his case, he would lose everything that he'd worked for in a lifetime. That would make most people nervous. For me, it was exhilarating because I knew that I'm going to make all the difference in the world to this guy. And I got him off and I was thrilled. I remember that client in that case to this day. And I still get that same visceral thrill all these years later when I say to a client, and that's why you don't have to pay the taxes. Just like look at the Fortune 500 that make billions with a B and they don't pay taxes. How do they do that? They have an army of people like me saying, do this and this and this and this. And I get a real thrill out of it. For example, real estate, that is such a taxed advantaged area. To me, the most beautiful words in the English language are positive cash flow with a tax loss is exactly what you can do with real estate. And then you start combining all these different areas. For example, I'm sure your audience is familiar with cost segregation analysis, or should I define it and explain it? Oh, no, this is, uh, <laughs> I don't think you need to, but you know what, go ahead, go ahead and do it. We, we do do a lot of cost segregation and bonus uh, depreciation in our private uh, investment group. But you know, there's people listening who, who, uh, who are not part of that maybe, and don't understand the significance So go, why don't you go ahead and talk about basically what cost segregation analysis does. They do like the banks time value of money. If you have a choice between a benefit now or many years from now, it's better to have it now. So suppose we have a property and we have this situation, the amount of money that we receive is greater than the amount of money we spend on it. So we have a cash profit. We have more in our bank account than we did before. But then through the use of depreciation and here more depreciation because of the cost seg, we go ahead and we have a tax loss. We haven't written a check to depreciation, but we show that the result from that property is a loss. So for starters, we say, okay, now we don't pay any taxes, even though we've made a cash profit. And when somebody gives you something nice, what do you say? 
Well, thank you. Well, that's what most nice people say, but the people I know say, more, I want more. <laughs> and I say, right. well, let's give you more. Can you take that, that paper loss, that tax loss from the real estate and write it off against wages, dividends, interest, profit from a business? The general answer under 469 Internal Revenue Code is, well, no, that's a passive loss and you can't do it. However, there's an exception, real estate professional. And yep. if you're a real estate professional, you can take that loss against that other income. So what do you have to do to be a real estate professional? So let's assume we have this situation. We have a woman who's a brain surgeon and she makes a profit of a million dollars from her practice. She's married to a house husband. She also has investment in the property we we're just talking about. She says, honey, you're going to manage the property. We now have hubby because what happens is essentially be a real estate professional. There's a bunch of rules, but to simplify things, the major part here and what keeps most people out is that one of the spouses only takes one has to spend more than half their business time in the property. So here, house husband is now managing the property. Then what they can do is say, okay, well, I have that extra paper million dollar loss. I want to go ahead and write it off against the profit from the practice. And here's where you have people earning a profit from their business, earning a profit from the property, and legally not paying any taxes. That's one of many, many, many things that you can do. And if you would let me, I could go on for hours. Well, and hours I'll and tell hours. you. Well, let me tell you this one, Steve. And this might be the only podcast that that you will hear someone say this. But what you just told us is old news. We talk about real estate professional cost segregation, bonus depreciation, like all the time. So give me something special. <laughs> okay. What, what I would say is what I would say is special. No, what I'm saying is, and, and I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying is, tell me something I don't know, right? And, well, I, don't, I don't know what you know, but yeah, what, what happens is basically what we do in the now I do what we do in the office when when somebody comes in, we basically ask them what's your level of familiarity, and then we we may say, hey, you know all there is to know. Uh, that's can be the yeah. case, but we say, well, okay here's what we can do is we can expand on that and make it work. Uh -huh. Or maybe somebody knows about the concept, but we set up the accounting records. So if the IRS says, well, okay, you say you're a real estate professional and, and you work all these hours. Well, where's your proof of that? Oh, here's my log. Here's this, here's that. So basically that's what we do is we go into what do you have and yep. is there anything we do to prove it? And I'll tell you with a lot of clients, it's been my experience that they do know this stuff but their record keeping is horrendous. Sure. And it's a shame when somebody, you know, they qualify. Government says, where's the proof? Well, you know, I was really busy making the pro Oh, you don't have the records. And then we say, okay, well, here's the record you should keep. And that's why we want to go into tax court. If we have that situation where we can say, well, wait a minute, as we move up in the chain, the initial auditor who said, Oh, I demand these records and said all disallowed, no benefit for you. As you go up in the chain, you can get it accepted by something called substitute evidence where we show other things that we can sure. do. Other things can be a letter or even this year where we're keeping good records and it's similar to the past year or testimony of people. A lot of ways to prove it. And for example, going way back, remember the boxer Joe Fraser? Yeah. Joe had a tax loss on his mama's farm in South Carolina. They had no records. Joe and mom were not the greatest record keepers. They had no records. But the tax court judge found in favor 
uh, the Frasers. And you know what the tax court judge said why he did that? He said, I looked at Mrs. Fraser, I thought she was an honest woman, and I believed her testimony. And that's one of the things I want to say to your listeners, that people forget about that. The IRS agent says, well, you know what? Sure, you know, in planning, have records for everything. But this is real life. What happens if I'm representing clients? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm Joe Fraser. I, I don't have the records. Your testimony counts. If the judge believes you, you can go ahead and win that one. So the bottom line is just because some order says, well, you don't have the records, you can't do it. You don't just say, oh, that's too bad and give up. There's a lot of other ways to prove it. If you don't have a birth certificate, that doesn't mean you were never born. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, when you when you hear about Fortune 500 companies that are making billions of dollars and they are not paying any taxes, how can an individual potentially do that? Now, we've talked about the our real estate professional designation, and that's a major one. Um, you know, I happen to be a real estate professional, um, so I, I understand that one and a number of people in our groups do. But is there... Is is it necessarily the case that in order to do, you know, you, you always have your limitations, right? I mean, you're going to have, uh, and it's my personal experience, obviously you can only have so much depreciation. And then if you live in the state of California, for me, even if you zero out your, um, your federal, you still got a big California bump uh, and on, on top of that because they don't recognize some of these laws. So tell me. That's How, why so many people are leaving California. Well, yeah, you I know, can. We all have California source income, and yeah, one of my favorite areas to talk about is Puerto Rico. Yeah, well, you want to talk about? Let's talk about Puerto Rico if you want to, or you know, I mean, uh, because we, you know, I I know a lot about the Puerto Rican stuff, but I don't think probably a lot of people do. So tell me what some of those options are, the Puerto Rican options. So basically, a lot of people are leaving California, especially for the tax-free states like Florida and the state of Washington and Texas, but they're still stuck with the federal tax. Now, a few people like Tina Turner say, you know what, I don't want to be an American citizen anymore, and they give up American citizenship. But a lot of people say they're happy to leave the state, but they don't want to give up American citizenship. If you move to Puerto Rico, they have two acts down there that essentially you get down to the level of a very low level of tax, like 4%, where you live in Puerto Rico, or at least half the year you live in there, and that's one of the things you have to watch out for. You have to live there at least half the year. You get all kinds of exemptions from federal taxes. So that's one of the solutions that a lot of people are looking at because you're not giving up American citizenship, but you're giving up a lot in the way of taxes. So that's one of the things that you take a look at. Now, obviously... Another thing that we've done is in the international area, there's all kinds of countries. And, and this is the word tax haven is, is is not a dirty word, because if you look at the various jurisdictions around the world, there's some jurisdictions that don't tax. There's some that don't tax on certain transactions, some that don't tax if you're not their citizen, some that if you are their citizen, they don't tax. And then you make a decision. Well, we're, some countries will give you a tax holiday for five or 10 years. They don't tax you for a while. So you say, well, all right, it's a combination of factors. Physically, where do I want to live? And then what's the difference in options? You take a look at that, and that's where the citizenship comes up, because as an American citizen, unless we do Puerto Rico, it doesn't matter because we're taxed on worldwide income. The states are a lot easier to get away from the state tax than the federal. That's why Puerto Rico has become so popular. Sure, sure. 
But if you, if you are in now, I'm going to ask you just personally, um, you know, obviously I live in Montecito. I actually moved here from Chicago, which is, uh, I moved to San Francisco from New York city. <laughs> there you go. So you, you know, you, uh, for New York city, obviously and and California are, are a little bit more similar in taxation. I took a little bit more of a hit here moving to California on the state tax side, but is it possible for people to live where they want if they want to live in New York and live in California uh, and still have other strategies? I mean, listen, moving to Puerto Rico is a big deal, even if uh, even if it's for half the year and you have six, you know, if you have kids in school and all of that, you know, you always hear about or I always hear about Fortune 500 companies utilizing a lot of international options. You've you've talked a little bit about you know, the quote unquote tax havens. Can you give us an example a little bit how something like that might yeah, work? So in the, in the transfer pricing, suppose you have this situation, mm-hmm. you have a company in California and you have a company in a tax advantage company. So let's assume that we have a profit of a hundred here in California. And we say, well, you know what? I need to do a transaction. And again, it should be a bona fide transaction. That's mm-hmm. just a paper entry. But I need some advisory services from my company in country X and I'll pay them a fee of a hundred. So we say, well, okay, now I paid them a fee of a hundred. Now I wiped out my profit. So the fact that I live in California doesn't matter because even in California or any place else, my taxes, excuse me, my profit is zero. My tax is zero. Now that hundred is in country X that either doesn't tax at all, has a very low tax rate. So basically what I did was I moved the hundred that would have been taxed in California to a jurisdiction that's either not going to tax it or low tax. What you have to be careful about there is to show why it's a bona fide transaction and just do it to save taxes. That gets into the IRS transfer pricing rules. Right. And is that something typically, you know, that only major Fortune 500 companies are going to be able to do just because of the cost elements? Or is that something, do you think, that even... Small businesses, you know, if they structure well, sure things. small businesses can do it. And, and let me give you a personal example. Okay. You know, on, before the pandemic, we had a big office in the financial district of San Francisco, and we all worked there. The pandemic, I now have employees scattered all over the world. I am not a Fortune 500 company, but I have employees living literally all over the world working for me now. That being the case, if I said, well, I don't want to employ you anymore, but I would like to hire your company, then I've achieved that. Understood. Got it. Okay. Well, great. Let's say, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about sort of, um, you know, individuals. We're talking about some of the stuff that, you know, I'm selfishly asking you about uh, just in terms of California and all this kind of stuff. But okay. So you're in a, let, let's talk about the IRS audit, which uh, a number of us have been through and a lot of people are really scared of the idea of audits. What is nothing to be scared of? Yeah. They're, tell me, tell me why. Because the auditor has no power over you. The auditor might make suggestions to change your taxes, but that's all they are. They're suggestions. Unless you sign on the dotted line, there's nothing he or she can do to you. And, and here's the way I take a look at an audit. If you drive a vehicle at some point, a police officer may pull you over and want to see your driver's license. Are you going to never drive a vehicle again? Because someday a cop might want to see your driver's license. You show them the driver's license and move on. Same with the auditor. If Now, first of all, you don't have to go to the audit yourself. Your representative goes. We never bring clients with us. And if we can settle at the audit level, that's fine. 
The audit level, though, is the worst level to be. That's where the auditor is going to be really picky, most demanding. And in fairness to the auditor, they're the most constrained. They don't really have very much authority. They're basically a light switch, on or off, yes or no, allowed, disallowed. So suppose we have a situation where the auditor doesn't like what you've done. It could be for a variety of reasons. For example, looking at the case law, you see that the courts are all over. Can I deduct X? Some courts say yes, some courts say no. So being more aggressive, the person says, well, there's some cases that says I can do it. I'm going to deduct it. The says you can't do that. Or the, or the auditor doesn't like your records. Well, then what you say, okay, Mr. Auditor, I don't agree with you. Issue your report. So the auditor issues your report. You owe a zillion dollars. Then you can file a tax court petition. It only costs you 60 bucks. That's the filing fee. For the entire United States, for the Fortune 500, Mom and Pop Inc., and us as individual. There's only 19 judges. Wait a minute, 19 for, for what? 19 for all 50 states. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't divide equally. You mean they, they have to travel around like Abe Lincoln? Yes. And the judges are judged themselves, not by collection of revenue, but closed cases. So you have a right to be in that judge's courtroom, but the judge really doesn't want to hear from you. So what happens is there's a very effective system of appeal. So what happens is if I'm representing you and the order doesn't like what you've done, I file a tax court petition, basically says, my client doesn't know the money. IRS lawyer says, yes, he does. The judge never sees either one of those. The clerk of the tax court sends the case back to a settlement officer. The settlement officer's full-time job is to keep people out of tax court. In fairness to everybody, the settlement officer has a lot more discretion than the order. Remember, the order is a light switch. Yes or no? That's all you can do. Yeah. The settlement officer can split the baby. So let's assume we have this. Let's go back to those cases where I said some cases say yes and some cases say no. The basic settlement to begin with is what's called the hazards of litigation. Suppose there's 100 cases in one point and 70 of the cases say you can deduct it and 30 cases say you can't. The settlement officer say, okay, for settlement purposes, I'll offer you 70%. You can have 70% of what you did, and you concede 30%. If you're going to take that, I, I would sweeten up by saying, okay, no penalties on the 30%. If not, then if we're talking about something else, the settlement officer has a lot of discretion to use common sense. For example, if I'm running a trucking company, and I don't have one receipt for gasoline, and I have a gross revenue of a million bucks. I didn't gross that million bucks without paying for a lot of gasoline. So we will do a calculation and say, well, our trucks get so many miles per gallon. The average price that year was X. Do the math, and we have a receipt good for a certain amount of money. Settlement officer will accept that. And then they're, they're common sense. They're there to settle a case. Very, very different than an order. Order is there to nail you and say, you violated this, you didn't do that, and your, your P's and Q's aren't in order. He assessed the tax. That's his, his or her job. Settlement officer says, this is the person who went for Most people don't go further. Most people with an audit and say, well, they're not going to jail. It's very unfair because they pay that in monthly installments. Once you get to the level of a settlement officer, that's a person that want to make a deal with you. They want to make a deal. So you have a much better chance there. And then what happens is when you get the final settlement officer, the final settlement from the settlement officer, then you make a decision, do I think I could do better or not? And if the answer is 
you think you can, you say to some officer, well, okay, you know, look, I know you tried your best, but I want to try it. Then what happens is you say release the case for litigation, but now you have a second settlement attempt with the IRS attorney. Why would an IRS attorney have any reason at all to settle with you? I mean, he or she knows how to use the tax court. They're, they're very skilled professionals. Why do they want to do that? They're just like prosecutors. They have too many cases. And what happens is this. If you go to tax court after the trial, it's not like on TV that just says you win and you lose. Both attorneys have to do what's called post-trial briefs. That's where you pour over the transcripts and say, well, you know, when Mr. Smith testified on page three, there was an inconsistency on page 79, and therefore you make your point. That takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. If you settle the case, it's quick for both attorneys to appear before the court and say we've settled, the judge says fine, and moves on to the next case. So as a practical matter, here's an area, just like criminal law, most everybody wants to settle, 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 settle. Settlement usually means both sides give something up. So the bottom line is we started that case where the order said, no, you can't do that. The settlement officer said, well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'll give you X percent to settle. And if you choose not to do it, then you go ahead and you say, well, all right, let's see what the IRS attorney will give me. And then those few statistically few cases that go to trial, then you begin from zero and you try to convince the judge why he should say you're right and the IRS is wrong. And again, what I want everybody to remember is a judge will go ahead and accept things other than the standard receipts. And, and don't get me wrong. From this point forward, you should have a receipt for every penny you spend. But I'm talking about real life and people who come in the office and they didn't do what they were supposed to. My little joke is if everybody did what they were supposed to, they no work for lawyers. And what happens here is you say, well, look, let's go back and think about Joe Fraser's mother. What he had, the judge said he, he looked at Mrs. Fraser, he saw an honest woman, and he believed her. The value of your testimony, never forget that. Because the auditor isn't going to tell you. The auditor say, you don't have a document, you lose, that's that. Judges aren't that way. So that's the way the system works. And knowing how the system works empowers you. This is a system that really really can benefit you if you're familiar with both the laws and the system and how the system works. So this is this is actually really fascinating for me. And I'm going to ask you a few follow-up questions to this because I know people are thinking the same thing. They're like, well, okay, well, first of all, you know, I've got I've got a great CPA already who says don't worry about about, about audits, but the biggest reason he or she tells me that is, hey, it's just a negotiation anyway, but you're taking it a step forward saying, yeah, it's a negotiation and, and you've actually got advantage in this negotiation. So tell me this, the steps that you're talking about, you mentioned the 60 bucks. I mean, it seems to me like unless you could get anything you, you know, pretty much everything that you wanted out of that initial uh, audit, why wouldn't you go to that $60 second point? Uh, is there, is it just, because, you know, weighing your risk? Is that, is that why you well, you're weighing do? the risk and also mm-hmm. the difference between being represented by a CPA and being an attorney is you only have attorney client privilege with an attorney. So for example, when you're talking about your case to your CPA, if you have a weakness, what the IRS has been doing is calling CPAs to testify against their clients. And that's a bad for everybody right. because they say, okay, Mr. CPA, what'd your client tell you? 
would tell him, hand us all your records. Whereas an attorney, you could tell me that you ax murdered somebody while you were filing your tax return. <laughs> By law, <laughs> that's a secret. Even if you decide not to hire me, the fact that you murdered, yeah. ax murdered your, your next door neighbor, they can never get that from me. And that goes back to old English law where the people making law at the time said, look, you can't have the attorney testify against me because then the person would be afraid. What can I tell my lawyer? Just tell the lawyer everything and he or she'll sort it out. Okay. So, so 60 bucks, let's also talk about the time frame there, right? Because that's also potentially on your side, right? Like say if you have an audit, you don't like the, you know, negotiation, you go to that next step with the arbiter. I don't remember what you call that. Settlement um, officer. Settlement officer. And uh, how long does that usually take to get to the settlement officer? Are we talking months, years? It depends on how busy the IRS is. The IRS was always slow. After COVID, they got slower. So basically, if you have an audit and you go ahead and say, I disagree with your report, what typically happens is the auditor has to close the case unagreed. He or she then sends the case back to the notice of deficiency unit. They have to send you a notice of deficiency, and usually that'll take a few months. Then you get a notice of deficiency, which gives you 90 days to file the tax court petition. Then remember, you got 19 judges traveling around the country. So you're talking about, on average, probably about a year and a half. Occasionally, there's an exception where something slips through real quick or takes forever. But for the most part, most of the cases I see take about a year and a half. And then right before the case is going to go to trial, that's when you see the settlement officer. You talk with him or her. And then... You go through the process I just described. So you're talking about it's going to, let's say on average, maybe add two years. Got it. So, um, and then you talk about the final step, which is, you know, if you do end up in tax court, and again, people listening to this thinking to themselves, well, geez, well, you said 60 bucks to get to that place. But, you know, if I'm a small business and I, maybe I make a half million or a million bucks a year, what kind of costs are we talking about to get this kind of, to get that far, A, and B, to have, you know, somebody like uh, Steve Moskowitz representing me. So what, tell me about the practical elements of all of that. You know, that's one of the things that you look at because you said, well, who would not want to go to tax court? And you weigh, yeah, if, if you said to me, you know what, I do not owe that $400. And for the principle of it, I'm going to go to tax court. I'd say, you don't go to court for principle, you go to court for money. Mm -hmm. And that's not worthwhile. In a civil case, it's only about the money. So you take a look at what's involved here. However, sometimes you would want to go to tax court for a small amount because you want to set a precedent. You're basically, you're doing the same thing every year. So in my $400 example, if the government said, well, you can't do that, then in the upcoming years, you're going to have a lot more. It was just it was a very slow year that year. In the future, you're going to have a lot of that, those expenses. That one you might not want to settle because you say, well, look, I don't want to set the precedent. Now I can't deduct all of that. So the bottom line is you take a look at precedent. You also have to take a look at the states have an information sharing agreement with the IRS. So if you live in a state that has a state income tax, and most states do, it's not just what you pay the IRS. It's what you pay the IRS and the state. Then we also talk about future audits. The way most people get audited is through a system called DIF, D-I-F, Discriminated Income Function. And it gives 66 categories a score. And one of the things they take a look at you, if you've been audited in previous years, 
and you had to pay, that's something that weighs the scale more towards, well, this guy doesn't do his taxes right, audit him some more. So the bottom line is there's a whole reason that you might want to do this. But again, like any business person, you make a decision and every case is different, but that's, that's part of what you're talking to the lawyer for. Is this worth going forward? And then you make a decision and you do the best thing. So uh, Steve, tell me, tell us, you know, who are your clients? Who's the right client for you guys? What is your firm like? What kinds of people do you represent currently? Uh, give us that whole. Uh, we represent all kinds of people. The, the ones we're most likely to represent are business owners because business owners have a lot more tax challenges than employees. We certainly represent employed people too, but the majority of our practice is business people simply because as an employee, there's not all that much you can do. You get a W-2 and, and that's that. Maybe you have some deductions. However, as a business owner, there's all kinds of things and are you entitled to them? For example, one of the things that we like to talk about is we do a tax return. And one of the reasons I switch from being a CPA to a tax attorney, new client says, well, okay, you my tax return. I said, well, yes, but let's talk about tax planning. For example, are you entitled to R&D, research and development credit? Do you guys go ahead and do that in your practice? Are we? Shall I define what research and development credits are? Yes, please go ahead. Okay, so what happens is the, the beauty here is unlike most other things is a lot of things in tax, somebody will say, look, if you spend X number of dollars, that's a tax deduction, so you'll save Y number of dollars of taxes. That's nice, but it requires cash. With research and development, the government will give you a credit, and a credit's dollar for dollar, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. for new processes, innovative processes, and it doesn't have to be new to the world. It's new to you. And what happens is when we take a new case, we're looking at the current year, we can go back and amend three years. This is free money. When we poke through somebody's books, we say, well, you know what? This money you spent here, here, and here, that would qualify. You're not spending any new money. You're just taking advantage of one of these government programs. And a lot of people say, well, that sounds too good to be true. Why would you have something like this? And here's what I remind people. The tax system, everybody knows, there's two purposes of the tax system. Everybody knows one, extract money from us. But what's the other? We still live in a democracy. Now the government says, you know what? It would be really good for the economy if you would buy a new factory. But the government can't order you to buy a new factory. But they want you to buy the new factory. So how do they do it? They give you a tax incentive. Well, if you buy the new factory that we'd like you to buy, you'll pay less in taxes. That's how companies legally avoid paying taxes. One of the examples I use, mom and pop corner store pays more in taxes than Apple does. Sure. So we take a look at research and development credits. Another thing that's around now is new is employee retention credit. So what we have here, another government program, if you otherwise qualify, the government will hand you $33,000 max per employee to cover 2020 and 2021. So if you're a small business and you have 10 employees and you qualify for the max, the government will hand you $330,000. So we have 20 employees, 660 and so on. This is free money. It's not a loan. It's a grant. It's a gift. You don't pay it back. It's not like PPP where you have to ask for forgiveness. 
and you don't have to spend it a certain way. It's just free money. But you have to know for it. You have to know to ask for it and you ask for it. And you say, well, you know what? This 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 COVID, I've had a terrible year. I even make a profit. How am I going to get anything back? This is coming back from payroll taxes, not income taxes. So you can have a situation where you say, you know, I lost money. I said, okay, you lost money. We'll do an NOL, not operating loss. We'll get you back money that you paid in the past five years. But here you don't have to make a penny. If you have employees, you're paying payroll taxes. So what we do is we amend your payroll tax returns and we get back payroll taxes you've previously paid. And you say, that's great. And you know my feeling on when somebody gives you something nice. So you say, this is terrific. I'm going to get taxes back. And this goes all the way through the fourth quarter of 2021. So what happens is with your payroll taxes, let's assume we're getting some money back from our previous year, but now you're getting ready to write a check to the IRS for your payroll taxes for this period. I say, wait a minute, hold on. Let's assume that you were entitled to a credit of 100. Let's further assume you're getting ready to write a check to the IRS for 30. I say, well, wait a minute. Don't write the check for 30. Don't write them any check. Let's take 30 of our employee retention credit. We pay the IRS zero. And now the IRS will write you a check for 70. That's one of the things we take a look at. Hey, Steve, can I can I back up on the credits? Because I can sure. tell you that one of the, you know, with R&D credits and that sort of thing, some, some of the pushback, or I wouldn't call it pushback, but some of the reluctance uh, that I've seen from CPAs on that is you know the the valuation of the r r and d and you know and uh, how much do it really cost and getting you know third party involved and then all I mean, you get all that stuff that they talk about at least the cpas that i've talked about and the next thing you know you're like well shit that would excuse my language but that would that would cost you know uh, almost as much as the deduction so why would i do that i mean so how you know is that is that something um practical you, for you, many that businesses? is exactly why I stopped practicing as a CPA and became a tax attorney. Most CPAs don't want to do anything like that. It's, oh, it's too much trouble. It's too much, you know, I don't have a receipt with a check mark paid. It's not finite. And what I, it's been my experience with a lot of CPAs, they don't want to do something where you don't have an actual check written. Oh, I I can deduct your rent because I see that check there for $1,000 to John Smith Landlord. And again, everything in business is an economic decision. And you say, well, okay, how much do I stand to earn? And also, when we walk into a client, we're talking about, you know, three years worth, not just one year. So we'd say, well, all right, how much potentially can we save? And how much does it cost us? And you just do a simple profit analysis. If I said to you, look, I can save you a hundred grand in taxes. And we have to have an expert here and pay him 10,000. Would you take that deal? Sure. I take it all day long as a business person. Mm-hmm. But, but one of the, and again, I, I can speak because I have both licenses. CPAs are always doing that. Remember what I said? I want to be the, and when I went to law school as a student, I want to be the guy to tell clients what they can do, not what they can't do. That is what CPAs are doing all the time. Their deal bosses, oh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. They're so conservative. Yeah. And yes, it's conservative, but the problem is what I say to those CPAs that are doing that, you're doing that with somebody else's money. You say, I can't be bought. You want to do it with your own money, you do whatever you want. But you're doing it with somebody else's money. Well, wait a minute, let's ask them. And not to mention the fact that if you're entitled to these things, we're talking about three years for starters, 
And then you make somebody aware of something. You say, well, look, you know, I do this process. This is something that, you know, I can save money on taxes in the future. And also there's additional benefits here. Suppose you say, you know what, that's great. You're an established company. You've done all this stuff. And this guy's talking about three years. We just started out. And you know what? We lost money the first year. We don't even, you know, have any taxes to get back. When you're a new company, although your your first place is income taxes, the government will also give you money back again on payroll taxes. So this is very, very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Another area that is tremendous is pensions. People are familiar with the simple pensions like, you know, IRA and 401k. Mm-hmm. But the problem with those, they're so limited. So what happens is there's over 20 different types of pensions and there's three big reasons why you want to do a retirement account. One, it's a tax deduction. And suppose one of your listeners is listening to that and says, you know, boy, that that's great. I wish I had a pension. You know, I I'm going to have to pay so much on my 2020 taxes. I'm just working on it. I, I filed an extension and we know that almost everything you have to write the check by December 31st, 20 to deduct it in 20, not with a pension. There's a lot of types of pensions where you get to have a deduction up to the time of filing the return plus extension. So suppose I met with one of your clients is on extension right now. Suppose we set up a pension for him right now today in 2021 and his tax return isn't even due yet for almost half a year. And he funds it the day before his return is due. Guess what? He gets to deduct it from 2020. So there's three big reasons for, for retirement accounts. One, you get a big tax deduction and the typical client that we represent deducts hundreds of thousands of dollars. I was working with a client literally yesterday. You know what his pension deduction was for the year? $601,000. Ask your business people, would you like a legitimate $601,000? And to give you an idea, in the past 30 years, we've had 145 audits of pension. That's not much in 30 years. And you know what? We've had a hundred percent success rate in every case. The IRS agreed what we did was right. And in these cases, we didn't have to go beyond the initial audit because this is statutory. You're entitled to it. So number one benefit, big tax deduction. So you have to answer the tough question. Would I prefer to a decrease my taxes and put my money in place where it's totally safe or B pay more taxes and not have my money in a safe place. That's why you want to do the retirement account. Second, when the money is in the account, it's not being taxed. So your investment grows a lot faster. And what a lot of people don't know is that the pension itself is an exempt asset. That means, you know, in your business, people get sued all the time. Suppose the plaintiff gets a judgment against you in excess of your insurance. He can take away everything that you have. One lawsuit can take away a lifetime of earnings and savings, not with a pension. Although I hate to mention his name, let's take a look at OJ Simpson. You were smiling. You probably figured that out. <laughs> OJ has a multi-million dollar judgment against him. He's not lost a penny of his pension because of these protections. So pensions are fantastic. That's why when we go in, we talk to a client, we take a look at him and say, okay, let's see what we can do for you overall. There's a lot of different things we can do when we do the tax planning. We've talked a little bit on this show, believe it or not, of even foreign pension plans. So that gets a lot also into the investments because there's a lot of foreign investments you can make that pay way better than here. But we go back to our old risk reward ratio. 
And when you're dealing with your retirement account, are you willing to take that risk for the reward? And when we do those, what we're basically doing is say, look, you can have multiple pensions, just like making other investments. You want to incur some additional risk for some additional return. That's fine. Let's not put all, all our eggs in that one basket. Right. Well, good. Listen, I could talk to you for all day. In fact, I think there's so many things here, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. There's going to be a lot of interest, Steve, in what you have to say. How do we, uh, how do we get a hold of you? Call me at 888-TAX-DEAL. That's 888-T-A-X-D-E-A-L. 888-TAX-DEAL or MoskowitzLLP.com. Got it. Steve, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast, and we'd love to have you again sometime in the future. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much for inviting me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. I don't know Stephen Moskowitz very well, but I, I I found that interview to be really fascinating. I think it's eye-opening, right? I mean, we, we, we just going back to the whole idea of being scared of any sort of IRS correspondence at all. I mean, look, this is sort of like the polar opposite of that, right? Where... I mean, Stephen's basically saying, hey, you're the one with the leverage, right? And that's a really uh, different way of looking at things. Now, how you interpret that is totally up to you. Again, I don't know, Stephen. I can't say, you know, I am recommending Stephen or something like that. That's for you. If you want to have a conversation with Stephen, go ahead and do that. But what I will say is you do need to have a very, very high quality CPA and you need to make sure that you're not outgrowing the one that you have. I mean, I think it is really important that you continuously, you know, legally do what you can to keep the money that that you make. Because it's not about how much money you make, it's about how much you keep. And that's really why we talk so much about taxes on Wealth Formula Podcast. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.